Forgiveness is a great thing. You know, if they were mean to you and horrible and the divorce was horrible and you had a dreadful time, once you're over it, forgive it. Hello and welcome to The Third Act. I'm Catherine Fairweather and the voice you just heard was the ever-youthful Corinthia West. More of her in a minute. This is the series where we bring you sparkling conversations with vintage minds. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with my guests for lunch in the Sumptuous Calford's restaurant and discovering how they're redefining later living and very much embracing life's next act. My guest today is a former colleague from Harper's Bazaar and Harper's and Queen, where she was contributing editor. There, she wielded a pen as adroitly as she wielded a camera in the 1970s, taking snaps that conjured all the carefree energy of the era when she... The original It Girl, a former actor and model, hung out with rock legends such as The Stones and Beatles and when she shared a flat with Helen Mirren in Hollywood. These lively snapshots and intimate portraits were recently the subject of a show called Shooting Stars at the American Museum in Bath and she has exhibited in many galleries around the world. After two marriages, she now lives alone in Cornwall and I am thrilled that she has taken the time and made the effort to come to Orion's and Culford's. Lovely to see you. I'm thrilled to see you in the flesh because yesterday I went to see your show at Bath American Museum and it was wonderful to see you all those years ago in in Polaroid and uh, this wonderful evocation of an era, the 1970s. I mean, you were in your late teens, early 20s, uh, in the 70s? Late teens, tw- early, tw- yeah, early 20s, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what looking a, beautiful and young, and God, like we all long to extraordinary. look. Extraordinary! <laughs> what a what an era! I mean, what a what a life you led. So let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. You were living in America. You'd followed your army father to the states. Well, I was very lucky. I had two very enlightened, intelligent parents, and as I was an only child, I went with them everywhere. So they didn't stick me in boarding school and have me out at half term kind of thing. So dad's army career took him to Germany. I was born in Austria. Uh, we lived in London. We lived Hence in the York. name Corinthia. Exactly, mm-hmm. from the province I was born in, Carinthia. And um, when he got the job in Washington, which was the NATO representative uh, for the UK, they used to take it in turns with different countries. And they took me there. And I think it was a life-changing formative experience really because it was exactly when Kennedy had become president and I went to National Cathedral School which was a big school in Washington. It was full of cabinet congressmen, senators, kids. Lucy Johnson was there, Vice President Johnson's daughter. So we had an an incredible bird's eye view of a sort of political life in Washington and we all became very, very rebellious and we joined the teen Dems, you know, to vote in when Johnson went up for his term as president. But I'm running ahead slightly because, of course, we were also there when Kennedy was killed. And I'll never forget, you know, to, to be there instead of stuck in a boarding school in England, to be there and see firsthand, you know, the, hear the tolling of the bells. And be you remember it, yeah? Oh, everything. You yeah. know, we were changing for gym, you know. Everyone remembers, didn't they, where they were, but... We were changing for gym, all the colour bright yellow in our gym slips, you know, and we were suddenly summoned to the assembly hall, the headmistress, and by then the rumour was flying round and the bells started to toll and we knew he'd died. 
and everyone was weeping and we were all sat home and Lucy Johnson was escorted out by her senior Secret Service people because, of course, school. they thought Johnson was possibly shot as well. You know, it was a rumour. There was no media in those days other than the TV and the radio. There wasn't any social media, so nobody really knew what had happened. But it was awful. And then there's beautiful day with the funeral and the cortege and the riderless horse and the beautiful blue sky and did you did you feel american did you did you very much so yeah i arrived at the school being awfully british and you know the beatles were everything and by the time i left i had an american accent i hated england you know so i came back grumpily to england did you have to pay allegiance to the flag every morning i can't remember that i imagine that they let me sit or stand but not do it. I can't remember. But you never, you never acquired an American accent. You've I did, yeah, yeah. I was completely you... American by the time I came home. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, these boring British school kids, you know, done nothing. And, and then, of course, I had great kudos because I was British so in America. They loved it because of the Beatles and I could get tickets to the Beatles through my father and the diplomatic. So when they came over to America, we went up to Baltimore and saw the show, and I always remember coming back, my mother in front of an entire dinner party saying, oh, Corinthia's just been to see the Beatles and she's had her first orgasm. Can you imagine, you know, you're like, what? Mommy, how could you behave like that? How could you do that? They were obviously weren't stuffed shirts, your parents. No, they were amazing. And my father was known as the dancing gentleman because they threw these amazing parties all the time. And I should say that he was actually known as the swinging general, but you have to, you can't use that anymore. It doesn't sound quite right. That's exactly Um, right. Anyway, they had these dinner parties where I would look over the banisters and there'd be sort of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and Julie Christie and, and Mount Batten and all At your parents' with. parties? Hmm. They knew. They, were, they loved to dance. And they, had, they initiated a very interesting thing, which I think people do quite a lot now, which is they just, instead of having one huge table where everybody sat rather pompously and you know, protocol was observed and all that. They had card tables, so they just had lots of card tables for four. And so you really got to know the people that were on your table. And then they moved them around, I think, at dessert, you know. So they were unusual. So that's, you inherited your free spirit, perhaps, and your your party-loving vibe from them. I think so, yes, yes, yes. I'll go anywhere for a party. (laughs) (laughs) Will you still? Not quite anywhere. No, I'm a bit more selective now. <laughs> yeah. So then did you go back to England to complete yes, your education? Yes, we came back uh, when I was about 14. We we went on the Queen Mary there and the Mauritania back. And, uh, we, you know, it was lovely to be on those fabulous old boats and, and completed my education, what it was worth, at Queensgate. And then got chucked out of there because of all sorts of wearing short skirts and the King's Road had just started and I always playing truant. Well, it's, it's great to be sitting having breakfast with you in Orion's and this in, in, in your former stomping ground. This was where I saw Jimi Hendrix in that garden because we the Chelsea Antique Market had a little cafe above it and along he came along the King's Road in his purple flares with the beads and they're followed by a piper and all a merry band of kind of girls and boys and long flowing hippie thing I, uh, you know this this was our stomping ground yeah, definitely absolutely and we, so used, we didn't you didn't get uh, cappuccinos in those days did you or did you yes you probably got a very boring 
black coffee, actually. Nescafe or something. Yeah, no, it wasn't. No, there was coffee. Kenko Coffee House was quite... Because the Orion's Coffee is pretty good. <gasps> Orion's Coffee is the best in the world. I'm going to be coming here for ages, taking Orion's Coffee. Wasn't it just down the road or around the corner on the King's Road that you were sort of discovered as a model? Yes. I mean, I, I, it's funny this word discovered because I always remember Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. And people say, oh, you were discovered playing your guitar. I said, yeah, discovered after 15 years of playing chords, you know. I suppose it's true that I was picked up by Bob Whitaker, who was a very well-known photographer, but I'd, I'd never heard of him and Martin Sharp, the cartoonist who did Disraeli Gears. And I was standing with my friend Angela from school and we'd done the usual white lipstick and merry quant tights and hiked our skirts up Saturday afternoon, you know, to go to the Kenko coffee shop, run through the quorum and have a look at what was going on clothes-wise. And this, this young man came up, well, older man to me then, and said, would you like to model for me? So we were, of course, primed by our mothers never to go anywhere with strange men. And, but because it was broad daylight and they were so nice and they were easygoing and kind of cool, we went up the steps of the pheasantry. We felt quite safe. And we were safe. They were charming. And we went to the top flat. And it turned out to be they shared with Eric Clapton. Anyway, then, in, you know, we sat there and, and chatted and... I suspect probably a joint was rolled. And, and then in walked sort of Marianne Faithful and Anita Pallenberg and idols, you know. Goodness, and that was your introduction, basically, to that yeah. world that then you became part of. Well, yes, but it took a bit more time because I was still at school and then I had a very bad car crash coming back from a party in London, actually, with a boyfriend who was driving in a mini back to my boarding school and someone came towards us with only one light on their car, so he thought it was a motorbike, and we smashed. I was very lucky, but I ended up in hospital for about a year, on and off. I've never had plastic surgery, but I had a brilliant surgeon who used to do the burnt soldiers for McIndoe. He studied under McIndoe at that wonderful hospital in Sussex that put all the fighter pilots back together. And uh, he'd learned his trade from him, so I just had several operations, and it's fine now, makeup covers it, but it kind of went, oh, right, there goes my modelling career, you know, I'm not going to have a career in modelling. Do you think that changed you psychologically a bit and you decided to just grab life and did it, did it spark a hedonistic streak? I think, I, I know one thing it did, which is that I was tipped to go to Hull University. I got good grades. I was the youngest that they would have accepted and there were others. I was about to sit for Oxford and all those things. And I just said, I can't do any more education. I can't stand it. I can't, I don't want to, I want to go to acting school and um, learn to, to, to act. So I think it made me just... Yes, grab things and also think, you know, I can't just be modelling, you know, which I might have done. I might have done a lot more face modelling at the time. I liked your bottom in that shot, um, <laughs> in the poster. I, I That's can... an amazing, in, in Shooting Stars. So what is that poster? It was you standing in, on a balcony. It was used as an advert for something, wasn't it? Well, no, what it was is Robert Palmer, Robert who, was, Palmer yeah. uh, who was known for really interesting record covers, got Graham Hughes, the photographer, to shoot a back view of me. I was chosen as the model, standing in very, very high heels. 
at a window with the light, and where's Roberts in front? I think he's holding a remote control. That's Robert Palmer in front. Robert Palmer. He's also and, my hero. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the album was called Pressure Drop. Yeah. But the funny story about that is that there I am in this room with Robert Palmer, his wife looking rather crossly on because she didn't trust him, the continuity girl, the makeup girl, Graham and his assistants. So I'm stark naked, standing at the window, and I see this glint in the car park catching the sun, and there's a man with a camera getting my front view which, of course, was a lot more interesting than my back view. <laughs> and I screamed, you know, ah! And Graham said, what's the matter? And, I, and then he sent his assistant off, and they sort of got rid of this guy. And, and, and then we did that shot. I, it came out, the actual album came out at the same time as one of the Stones albums, Black and Blue, I think it was, which got a lot of flack from the feminists, as did my album, because it was like using a woman as naked body as a mannequin yeah and so I was very worried that my name would come up and I certainly didn't want my parents to know not that they were straight laced but just that I didn't want to embarrass them and of course that Christmas my father appears with six copies of the album and said well I said what are you doing he said I'm giving it to all my friends I'm the producer of this wonderful image you know Talking about album covers, uh, my favourite album cover, the Pink Floyd... Uh, Animals. Animals, yes, with a pig floating above Battersea yeah. Power Station. Yeah. Tell me about that, because it's Well, I didn't, show. firstly, I must be stressed, I didn't do the album cover itself. That was Storm and Poe with hypnosis. And I think it was because of his invitation. A group of the Floyd's friends in 1976 were sort of invited to go secretly down to Battersea Power Station very, very early one morning and uh, watched the floating up of... It was called Algae, the pig, and it was a huge, what you call a dirigible-type pig, you know, balloony-type special effects thing. And it was to be floated above so that they could shoot this album cover. And I just grabbed my camera at the last minute and it had black and white film in it. I had no planning. I never planned anything. And I took it. And when this pig went up, I took... The photographs, some photographs, black and white stills. With, and I only had one roll of film, 36 Triax. And anyway, suddenly there's, there's a snap and the pig started wavering about and we realised that it was going to float off. And it caused a huge drama on the day because not only did there were flights coming down the Thames, you know, and if the pig had gone the wrong way and, and the evening standard run and headline. And anyway, this, this, so we scarpered and, and, and it shows in the, I have a contract sheet which shows that we obviously left and because it's then suddenly taken from the other side of the Thames. <laughs> but um, the Floyd very kindly um, saw my photographs uh, when I started to show, I showed that one because obviously I was asking permission from people. And I said, oh, my God, we love these. And there's a lot better than some of the professional stills photographers they had on the day. And we're going to do this exhibition that's going to start at the V&A. Can we have seven of your images? But yeah. it's extraordinary, because by your own admission, you're, you're not tutored in photography. You, you, you said you didn't know your, um, your F-stops from your G-spots. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's I know. Really I, I really wanted to write. I mean, writing is my first passion, really. I was doing, remember, loads of, that's how we met, loads of magazine articles for different magazines. Yeah. Well, you've got a great turn of phrase. I love your epigrammatic 
phrases. They're very good. And you have to write this memoir. Thank you. Sit down and write it in Cornwall now. Oh, yes, I know. <laughs> I'll never see you again. <laughs> I think you said somewhere, or I read somewhere, that you said that you can remember dates by remembering which man you were with at the time. And so, in a sense, your life was defined a bit by the men you were with, by men which is, I guess, an anti-feminist stance. Yeah, very. Um, yeah. Have you changed? I mean... Well, uh, it, it wasn't really, because, uh, A, you get... I mean, someone said the other day on a Zoom thing, I did a talk to people, you know, Corinthia's been out with this and that and Brian Ferry. And I hang on, you're getting me confused with Jerry Hall. I've never even met Brian Ferry. You know, and then Wikipedia says you went and dated Bob Dylan. Not true. So, you know, a lot of my the men were actually friends. And, and obviously I moved, for example, for jobs as well. I was getting acting jobs and TV. Very independent, actually. Yeah, I think that was the thing. You were a free spirit and very independent, although you you had plenty of men hanging on your your own coattails because you were so gorgeous. I understand that now. Isn't that incredible? At the time, all you think about is I've got a spot on my right cheek. How, I must be so hideous, no one's ever... You know, and I, I talk to my, all my young godchildren and, you know, friends' children, and they're all the same. They're the most beautiful girls at that age think they're not that interested. You know, it's amazing. You, you, you have s- no confidence at that time. Yeah, you, you describe yourself as sort of flying by the seat of your hot pants <laughs> everywhere, which I love, that sort of image of someone who's, whose life is untutored in a way you you haven't planned the way no. anything everything is spontaneous yeah, you things is. happen to you yeah. because you have an open heart and an open mind and you you go with the flow it's it's quite a different way of life to the way our our youth live it today don't you think I couldn't agree more yeah. and it's slightly scary you know that I, I did do that because now girls of 20 know what their mortgage is and and you know where they're going to move to and they've they've planned everything and they have to because it's such live a different, in different times yeah yes yeah. and that's that's what really struck me about your shooting stars exhibition was that sense of of carefreeness of I mean I don't know whether it yeah. was just because you were all young in those pictures but you were all smiling there's a sense of sort yeah. of unproduced spontaneity to the pictures obviously you were snapping away with your polaroid camera well not all polaroid a lot of canon, canon a, but, yeah. but it you know we lived in the time before social media so nobody had that self-conscious thing that they've got to rush and make themselves look better and have the best profile and you know you i don't i think that the fact that you can now send take a photograph and it's with everybody you know in about 10 seconds it's so different and we, you can uh, and you can manipulate your photograph before you send it out as well now yeah now, everything yeah. can be so manipulated yeah. can't well it? the process then yeah. i mean going back to the you know technology of driving things the process was i might take a whole load of pictures that you maybe saw in the exhibition and then forget about it, put my camera away, and then two weeks later, or a month later, pick it up and take a picture of my cat and my mother to finish off the role. Then another week goes by while I go to the lab and get it. Then another week goes by while they process it. And by the time I've got it, you know, we're probably two months down the line and have a print. And then I just kind of 
put them in albums like you do or, or just... I never thought I'd exhibit, ever. Never, ever occurred to me. What was that um, who mantra that you all live by? Um, I'd rather die before I get old or something. Do you remember Oh, that? the who, yes. I, I, yes, I'd rather die before I get old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope I die before I get old. Yeah, fact, well, of course, everyone thought 30 was ancient. Then. <laughs> and you, you know. never really thought about getting old when you were... I mean, young, the young people don't. Young people don't think about getting old. It's both no. when you're 25. Yeah. You don't think about being 75, do you? No. Did we? No. Even, I mean, that period you're talking about, I was having a good time, but a lot of people weren't, you know, let's be honest. Because of drugs. Drugs, um, you know, the IRA were bombing London, a three-day working week. Uh, one of the reasons a lot of people went off to America was that it just was impossible to live in London. They weren't collecting the rubbish. It, yeah. You know, it was a really weird time. And you were in America all that time. You were in California. Uh, no, I went back and forth so much. I, I went... When I was old enough and I'd finished drama school and I was getting a few jobs in London and then all that time hit and I can't remember why I went out in the 70s. I think just for a sense of adventure. You lived with Helen Mirren, didn't you? I did. Helen was a friend. We shared houses in mostly in L.A., flats, and uh, she took the maid's room always and was very sweet and, and paid the lion's share of the rent because she was earning a lot by then. Do you still see her? When we can. I went to her 70th birthday and that was a few years ago now. She's amazing. She's so, she, she never changes, you know, she hasn't got grand. She's got busy. And do you, do you think that, that the secret to ageing well, which she obviously has plugged into, is that idea that if you remain engaged, you can keep old age at bay? Do you think, would you subscribe to that view? Well, I think what's interesting, I've been talking to friends quite a lot this week about it. You know, of course, we've got, we've had the pandemic thing, and a lot of people have become so much more reclusive. And we're all talking about how once you're over 70, you must retain curiosity and you mustn't be judgmental because the thing that ages you most is sort of pronouncing on, oh, I can't see that, or, you know, being quite grumpy and, and uh, a bit dictatorial. Those are sort of very ageing things, funnily enough. You wrote about menopause being not a midlife crisis but a midlife oasis, which I thought was a quite a oh, nice yes, way of yes, it was... putting it because it's such a positive spin on something yes. that so many people... Fine, it's so hard. You found it releasing, which yeah. I think is very refreshing. And you also then said that getting older for you was a great thing because it taught you humility and patience. And what else did you say about being older? Oh, serenity. Serenity, you yes. Must have, I, well, I've had a very good um, mentors and my godmother, who's 93, who's remained serene. She forgets things now. Having no memory of things is quite nice to keep you serene. I mean, I, I mean, obviously everything is it's not that easy. It's not like one's just, you know, I love that quote from, was it Lauren Bacall or Catherine Hepburn, old age isn't for sissies or something. Yeah, it's tough and things start to hurt and things start to ache and you don't, you, you know, where it took me half an hour to get out of bed and, you know, now I plan two hours to kind of get ready for the day. You know, well, it's just a walk. You've got to walk the dog. No more, you, no more flying by seat of hot pads. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, you've got to have the bath. You've got to walk the dog. I live alone, and I didn't plan after my divorce to do that. And that was maybe 10, 11, 12 years ago now. I've remained friends, luckily, with my husband, but my ex-husband. But I, I think living alone... 
you have to guard against that kind of being fixed about something. I, I'm so glad I do live alone and not with the wrong person, put it that way. And that is really important to me, not to be with someone because you feel, oh, what will I do if I don't have, you know, somebody by my side and a lot of people that are like that so, so when you say it's important not to be fixed you mean it's important not it's important to be part Flex. of a community and and engaged in in conversation and debate do you yes mean that? And, and, yeah. and flexible, flexible and always get younger friends my mother and father did that they always had younger friends some of whom are now my older friends in other words they'd they'd be in their 70s but their friends were then in her 40s and those one of the women I just saw yesterday, you know, she's now in her 80s, and I'm the one who's younger, yeah, obviously. you're the spring chicken. But in fact, it was your godchildren, wasn't it? Your, some of your godchildren who encouraged you, looking through your albums, they thought, oh my God, Corinthia's so part of this, these, yeah. these lives of people that we've heard about. Yeah. They encouraged you to do the show, didn't they? Yeah, well, not that show, originally a show. When I first showed photographs, it was like, I was terrified, you know, I had 10 on a wall in the Isle of Wight, it's a friend of mine, and, and I was sort of, I didn't, I think my overriding thing was I didn't want to be taking advantage of people's fame just because I'd been around them, yes. and so I, I kind of, you know, I felt very strongly I didn't want to be viewed paparazzi-like and t taking a claim and sort of being reflected glory and all that. So I, I, I beat that in a way as I got more and more exhibitions going, by going to everybody in the pictures and asking their permission. The picture that you took of Mick, the picture of him smiling and yeah. with his hair all over the place. Yeah. I mean, your relationship was obviously a very close one. Um, didn't he write Miss You for you? <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to answer that. Trick question. <laughs> Trick question. Uh, well, put it this way, he has said in the documentary interview that we've done with him that he thinks I think he wrote Far Away Eyes for me, and then he laughed and said, I think I did, or maybe I didn't, or maybe it was someone else. So I, I always think it's best that other people say what yes. they wrote for you, because it's I not... I think he wrote it for you, actually. <laughs> so I'm going to say that. But it then. was my period of time, I'll put it that way, yeah, yeah. How do your peer group deal with older age? These, these glamorous people that you hung out with. I mean, being very beautiful is very potent, isn't it? I've always wondered how people who are exceptionally, gloriously beautiful, who attract people just because they're gorgeous, how do they deal with the loss, inevitable loss of, of good looks as they get I mean, older? I'm afraid we go back to intelligence, I think. You know, how, in, how emotionally intelligent you can be. And if you've always looked only at... I mean, we all know those stories of people who are absolutely stunningly beautiful, but then suddenly there's nothing... The men fell away and the people fell away. And, and if their character wasn't very nice, for example, then, you know, you get what you put out, don't you? you there's a great acting thing, but character is destiny. Your character is destiny, and I really believe that. I mean, I do know a couple of people who were cover girls and amazing, but their confidence has ebbed away as they age. And they're still the most charming, lovely people, but they, they, they're... You know, I notice they don't go out as much. Maybe they think... Linda Evangelista apparently doesn't go out anymore. Linda Evangelista. I know. Well, That's she a tragic some story. Work done, yes. she? That's a terrible story. Yeah, a really terrible, terrible story. story. 
But um, you seem to have set, stayed incredibly friendly with all these people from the 70s. They're still your friends. Well, yes. I mean, I do laugh because sometimes you're having an exhibition and they go, oh, are the stones coming to the private view? And I think they have actually got lives. <laughs> they have got other things they're doing. I'm very lucky that Mick very kindly gives me tickets for the shows. So I've seen every show. But I, I mean, you know, everybody's got lives, children, busy, so I don't see people day to day, and then we're scattered, we're a big tribe of people. And then you lose friends through just illness, death, yes. geographical reasons, um, and it's very, and sometimes you have a horrible spat, mm. and it can't be made up, you know, mm. and we're all the same. I mean, it mm. doesn't matter if they're famous or not famous. Mm. I now have my best friends are probably people I've only met in the last five years since moving to Cornwall. And they're young women with young children. And they make me laugh and they do things for me. And they, when I was at one point, I had COVID, you know, it was them that brought the soup. It's not the Rolling Stones. <laughs> but that's another sign of a youthful spirit is the ability and the desire to keep making friends as you get older. I mean, you, you still have a, a desire to meet new people and, and make new friends, and you still can do it. That's, yes, I really That's, I think, that. part of the yeah. secret of your youthfulness. Yeah, well, thank you. My mum and dad were like that. They were always reaching out to people. I think the moment you stop and you, you, you know, you have to watch grumpiness and impatience, and that's my worst trait. I can be impatient. I just want to get on with something and not... You know, and we don't know when our lives are going to be cut short by something. And so can't... carpe diem, live, live, yeah, live the day. absolutely. And tell me something, I mean, you you have also, again, described yourself a bit like a rolling stone that gathers no moss. You, you're, you're I've like... not described myself. Oh, OK, like somebody described you. Did they? No, <laughs> I didn't know that. The <laughs> danger you... is, of course, of becoming Miss Havisham, you know, and having a wedding dress and it's all at home and you, and you can't get over the fact that you once were your days of glory you you can never be like that I mean mm. it's just a fluid thing isn't it mm. so no I've kept my oldest friends very much so I think yeah. and I think I've kept I mean I was married twice actually and they're both husbands I'm very fond of and I forgive everybody forgiveness is a great thing you know if they were mean to you and horrible and the divorce was horrible and you had a dreadful time once you're over it forgive it so no regrets in your life Corinthia uh, you know, I used to have the regret that I didn't go to university. That was the biggest regret. And someone said it to me the other day that, really, you've, you've been in the university of life, which I thought was rather nice. And it, I suppose because you know that if you were at university, you, you had a certain group of intelligent people, you knew how to structure a novel or a you can still you know. go to university, Corinthia, <laughs> age 70. Yes, you can. You can. You can. You can um, go tomorrow. You can uh, sign up for... Yes, that's true. You can. Let's it's go true. together. I, yeah, I would love that. I'd love that. I'd need inspiration from someone else to push me. I'm, I'm not very disciplined, you would be surprised to hear. I think that's why I force myself to my desk at 9, 10. But it can often be not writing the book, which I should be writing. But. Yes, your memoirs. Yeah. And, and these days, life is possibly less Concord and more cargo, isn't it, than it used yes, to be? Yes, incredibly. Well, I haven't been on a plane since I caught COVID from one in the beginning of last year. So where's on your bucket list, or what is on your bucket list? In the next um, I'd love to go to Japan. But I have a dog now, and I, I would miss him terribly, and I can't go for more than a couple of weeks anywhere. Your dog is your baby, because you yes, didn't have a baby, Yes, he's my did. baby. Is yeah. he? What is he? He's a cockapoo. 
Yes, you can't you can't take off for Japan and no, even No, but I used to have a lurcher and a collie, and you certainly couldn't take them anywhere. <laughs> no, I don't. I think I really, I did. I did think about why am I having another dog at this point in my life, and then I thought, well, love in whether it's a dog or a human, you know, love is love. If you've enjoyed today's show. You can hear more episodes in the series by clicking follow wherever you're listening to this, or simply searching the third act on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you think your friends would love to listen, please do tell them about us. This episode was produced by Pete Norton and made possible by Orens, luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather, and I can't wait to join you next week for the third act.